Good morning, church. Good to see you guys all out here this morning. Um, Go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 13. Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 13. The title of the sermon is Real Christian Unity, part 5. And once you're at Romans 15, if you're physically able to stand for the reading of the scripture, please do. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. And Paul, the apostle, writes this. He says, Now we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not to please ourselves. Each one of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself. On the contrary, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction, so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the scriptures. Now, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one mind and one voice. Therefore, welcome one another, just as Christ also welcomed you to the glory of God. For I say that Christ became a servant of the uncircumcised on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises to the fathers and so that Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and I will sing praise to your name. Again, it says, rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. Again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will appear, the one who rises to rule the Gentiles. The Gentiles will hope in him. Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the word of God. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. God, we just come before you this morning. We ask you to bless us as we go through your word. We pray that you would be with us, Lord. I pray that, again, like normal, you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what is in your word. I pray that you would remove me as much as possible, Lord, that my weaknesses, my tiredness, or anything will not get in the way of your word going forth to your people, but instead, by the power of the Holy Spirit, your word would go forth. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, your word would be received and inscribed on all of our hearts, that you would write your word on our hearts as if our hearts are your scroll, Lord. And so we pray in all of this that your people will be built up, they'll be edified, that they'll become more and more like Jesus in the way they think and live. And we pray that those who don't know you would hear the gospel and come to saving faith in you today. God, we pray all these things for your glory, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. So, as the title shows, we are now starting the fifth sermon on the subject of Christian unity. We are in a part of the book of Romans where Paul the Apostle is hitting this topic really hard, and he's doing so for good reason. We sang earlier, a few songs ago, we sang that the world will know that we are Christians by our love. And we don't get that idea from the song. We we get that idea from Jesus. And that's why somebody wrote a song about that. So that the idea would be even put in our head and hearts more. In John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus makes this clear. He tells us the result of our love for each other and our unity. 
He writes this, he says, By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. So what he said there is very clear. The world will know we belong to him by our love, which also will be related to our unity. If we love each other, we'll be united to each other. And so Jesus prays for that to the Father on our behalf. The, the high priestly prayer that is recorded in John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21, look what Jesus says or prays about us. He says, I pray not only for these, meaning the apostles, but also for those who believe in me through their word. That's us, right? What's he praying about us? He says, may they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. So if we love each other, the world will know we belong to Jesus. If we're one, the world will know we belong to Jesus and that he is the Messiah. So if this was a top priority that Jesus has for his church, it needs to be a top priority for us. Yet look around. Are all true Christians united? Clearly not. They divide over many things and probably most of them are foolish. Now, I'm going to throw this little exception out there. We must divide over issues of false doctrine and sin. We cannot unite in sin, and we cannot unite in false doctrine. We have to divide over that. But I would say that most division that happens in the church is not because of that. Instead, it's because of self-centeredness and people demanding that they get their personal preferences. And if they don't get it, they form cliques that want the same preference. And when the clique doesn't get it, then boom, you get these divisions. You get church splits over really foolish things. And so this is what happens in many churches across the land. This is what was happening in the church of Rome that Paul's writing to. So chapter 14, verse 1, all the way to chapter 15, verse 13, is meant to fix that problem. So what we're doing is we're continuing in this section this morning as we begin chapter 15. Now, for those who who like to take notes, which is a good idea, the point of the text is really simple this morning. For the sake of church unity, we must bear one another's weaknesses. In other words, do you want us to be united? Bear each other's weaknesses. That is the point of the text. Now, the question is, how can we do this? Paul is going to tell us how by giving us two commands. You obey those two commands, that's how we do this. Command number one is to please each other. Command number two is to accept each other. So we will bear each other's weaknesses if we please each other and we accept each other. And of course, understand that there are limits to what it means to please each other and to accept each other. And the text will make it very clear what this means. But my point so far is this is how we bear each other's weaknesses. And bearing each other's weaknesses is how we will maintain the unity that Christ demands. And if we do so, he tells us the whole world will know that we are his disciples. So I say all that so that we would understand that we need to take this subject as importantly as God does. Our text this morning will help us to do that. Now, given how much is packed into it, hopefully you were able to even tell as we're reading the text There's no way I'm going to be able to get through all this this morning. There's just too much. And so this morning, we're going to get through the first command to please each other. And then next time, we'll finish with the second command, which is accepting each other. So this morning, I'm only going to get through verses one through six. And so if it's been a while and I'm only at verse five, don't worry. We're only going to verse six this morning. Now, this morning, as uh, as we're coming close to the end of a very important section of Romans, I want us to, I want to remind us of where we're at so we could get back up to speed. 
Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 13, does not exist by itself. It's part of a bigger section that began in 14, verse 1. So 14, verse 1 to 15, 13 is a section, right? But even that part's part of a bigger section that started in chapter 12, verse 1. And even that is related to a bigger section that goes back to chapter 1, verse 18, and goes all the way to chapter 11. Now, why am I saying this? It's because we need to know where this fits. Simply put, Paul wrote this letter to the Roman church because he has the grand plan or goal of preaching the gospel all the way out to Spain. Now, when this was written, this was written in about the year 58 AD. By the time that was written, Rome was about as far west as the gospel's gone. Paul wants to take it a lot further to Spain, and he needs the Roman church to financially support him and send him and also send some Latin speakers with him, right? And so he needs the church of Rome to help him fulfill this mission. We all do this together. We cooperate. But the Roman church is falling apart, and so that can mess up this whole plan. Now, why were they falling apart? Because they were not loving each other. Why were they not loving each other? Because they were forgetting what the gospel is and how the gospel is supposed to change the way we think and the way we live. Now, the specific problem going on in Rome, when you do all the homework and all the research, the specific problem is this. The Roman church had two kinds of Christians that had very different cultures. Okay? One kind were the Jewish Christians. These were Jews who rightly understood that Jesus is the Messiah. So they followed him. But they did so in a very historic and distinctly Jewish way. They still followed the law of Moses. They circumcised their kids. They kept the Shabbat or Sabbath. They ate kosher. And in fact, as I showed five sermons ago, the apostles in Jerusalem strongly encouraged this. Jewish Christians should keep those things. They don't have to, but they should, right? When a Jew becomes, when a Jew believes in Jesus, he doesn't cease to be a Jew. And I've been beating that drum for a long time as as a Jew myself, you don't all of a sudden, oh, I'm not Jewish now. Now that I believe in Jesus, I'm a Gentile. It doesn't work that way. That's not how it works. What happens is when a Jew believes in Christ, he becomes a completed Jew. So all those Old Testament practices, they don't go away. They just now have more meaning. They're even more beautiful than they ever were before. Now, these Jewish Christians in Rome, they were a minority. They were a big minority, but they were a minority. The majority of Christians in Rome were Gentiles or non-Jews. They were those who were being saved from the nations. They didn't keep the Sabbath. They didn't eat kosher. And they didn't have to. They weren't supposed to, right? The gospel does not require that. And so what was happening, though, is these Gentile believers were demanding that the Jewish believers conform to their practice and be like the Gentiles. And that demand was wrong. Now, if that's all there was to this, it'd be a simple matter of saying, hey, don't demand that. But there was more to it. There was a problem on the Jewish side as well. See, the Jews can keep their biblical and cultural practices as dearly as they like or as loosely as they like, right? But they need to understand that this is a liberty issue. The Jews do not have to keep kosher and they don't have to keep the Sabbath. Now, they may if they want. In fact, I tell you there's great benefit in these things, but they don't have to. The problem was some of these Jewish believers were thinking that they did have to. They thought that they must keep these things and that if they didn't, then they would be in sin. And that's just not true. Take Paul and Peter, for example. They were Jewish Christians. They were apostles. When they were with the Jews, they would eat kosher, right? But when they were around the Gentiles, they'd eat whatever was there. They understood that if you pray for the food, it sanctifies it, even if that food was uh, originally used in pagan rituals. 
They understood that reaching the nations means that you have to be able to eat with the people you're trying to evangelize, especially back then in hospitality cultures. And so it's not a sin for a Jewish believer in Christ to forego those Old Testament commands, especially for the sake of the Great Commission. But likewise, it's not a sin for them to keep those commands, right? If they want to, let them. If they don't, don't make a big deal out of that either. The problem was these Jewish believers in Rome thought they would be sinning if they didn't keep them. And so that makes this even more complicated because when the Gentile believers were bringing non-kosher food to their church potluck, their agape feast, um, that was on Sunday, they would surround the Lord's Supper with that non-kosher food. The Jewish believers are like, that non-kosher food is making the Lord's Supper now unclean. We can't take it. So you need to get rid of that that non-kosher food. And the Gentiles were saying, well, too bad. Get with our program or get out. And so some of the Jewish believers were like, fine, maybe we will. And if a big, sizable minority would have left that church, it it would have wrecked it. It would have weakened it. And now Paul can't get the gospel to Spain, right? He wrote the book of Romans to fix that problem. If you notice in this book, this is the only problem he brings up in this letter. You look at 1 Corinthians or Galatians, he brings up a bunch of problems. In Rome, in the book of Romans, this is it. This is the big issue. That means he did not write Romans to give us a treatise on the gospel. People always preach that way. He decided to give us his treatise on the gospel. Yes, he says more about the gospel here than anywhere else. But it was not to give us a treatise on the gospel. He wrote all of this to unify this church for the sake of the Great Commission. Because that is why local churches exist in the first place. The Great Commission. If they're not serving the Great Commission, they shouldn't exist. Right, And so Paul knows that, and he's trying to fix that church so that they could serve the Great Commission. Now, the reason he wrote so much about the gospel in the first 11 chapters is because the gospel and its implications are what would fix this problem. Right, It would fix it. And if you notice, the problem here is between Jews and Gentiles. And so through the first 11 chapters, he keeps showing how the gospel saves both Jews and Gentiles and makes them one. So think about it. He starts off the book by telling us both Jews and Gentiles violated the law of God. Both needed Christ to die for them and raise for them. Both needed to be justified by faith alone. And when they are justified by faith alone, alone, that makes Abraham, the patriarch, the father of both of them. That's chapters one through four. Notice how he's portraying the gospel. It saves both. And then in chapters 5 through 8, he shows us it's even bigger. Both have a bigger problem. They're in Adam. They need to be taken out of union with Adam and placed in union with Christ. Both are born in slavery to sin. They need to be set free from that slavery to sin so that they could serve Christ. Both need the Holy Spirit so that, that could, the Holy Spirit could write the law in their hearts and help them win that internal battle against sin that rages inside of all of us. That was chapters 5 through 8, and it ends on this high note that because both Jew and Gentile have the Holy Spirit, we will both finish the race together. Now, there was a little question that came along with this. More and more Jews were starting to reject Jesus, and more and more Gentiles were starting to accept him. So some were asking, does this mean that God is done with the Jews? Chapters 9 through 11 was Paul's answer, absolutely not. Right now, there's a remnant of Jews that believe. The rest are hardened. In fact, it's always been this way. Just read the Old Testament. And a whole bunch of Gentiles are coming in. And once the fullness of the Gentiles come in, then God will remove that hardening and all of Israel will believe and be saved. So that was chapters 9 through 11. And so that's the whole gospel program that Paul is is showing. And if you notice, everything in those first 11 chapters 
was about how Jews and Gentiles both need Jesus just as bad as the other. And the gospel fulfills both groups' needs, right? And in the process, what God is doing is he's making both one body, grafting them onto one tree, which is the spiritual body of Christ. So what he's saying is they need to live like it. And in chapters 12 through 13, he shows us what it means to live according to the gospel. He tells us how it changes our life. First, in chapter 12, he says that if you believe, if you're saved, then you're going to live like a living sacrifice. Your life's going to be a living sacrifice unto the Lord. And what that's going to look like is you're going to serve in your church. You're going to lay down yourself and you're going to use your gifts for the sake of building up other people. We're going to care for each other as a true family. How this looks to the outside world, we're going to obey the government. Unless the government tells us to do something that contradicts the Bible, right? And then in chapter 13, he tells us, look, at the end of the day, it's love. Love is what fulfills the law. So love each other. We're going to be loving each other forever anyway. We might as well start loving each other now. So all of that then rolls us into our current section where he's now dealing with this problem. If the gospel's that great and saves both peoples, right? And if the gospel changes the way we live in general, then how does it affect this specific issue? Well, that's chapter 14, 1 through 15, 13. And what Paul's doing is he approaches it with a think, know, and do strategy. So first he tells you what you need to think. Here's how you need to think. Loving each other means we don't judge and despise each other. Love also assumes the best, not the worst. When you're assuming the worst of somebody's motives, you're wrong. You're not loving them. He's saying that Jew that keeps kosher, that person's doing it unto the Lord. And that Gentile that eats whatever he wants to eat, he also is doing that unto the Lord. Assume the best. Don't try to force each other into doing your preference. That was chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. That's what we're to think. After telling us what to think, he now tells us what we need to know. Like theologically, what's the truth about this? Well, first we need to know that nothing is unclean in itself. No food, none of that stuff is unclean. The Gentiles were actually right, and the Jewish believers theologically were wrong here. Okay, And so, so nothing's unclean, but he doesn't stop there. He also keeps going. He says, yeah, but there are people with hyperactive consciences. And for the person who has a hyperactive conscience, it would still be wrong for them to eat that food because they think it's a sin. If they think they're disobeying God by eating it, then in their heart, they really are disobeying God. And if you force them to eat that food or do whatever your liberty is when they think it's wrong, you are setting them down a path of sin, which could eventually lead to them sinning on bigger and bigger things until their faith is completely shipwrecked. Okay, so Paul is saying, yeah, nothing's unclean in terms of food or holy days or anything like that. Every day is alike. He's saying that's true, but not everybody sees it that way. So don't force people to do things your way. In fact, he says, if you force somebody to do something that their conscience thinks is sinful, you are stumbling them. And I kept emphasizing when I was going through it, stumbling does not mean offend. I might have a a liberty that I keep and it might offend you. Too bad. It's not talking about offense. This is talking about stumbling. If what I do that I'm allowed to do, if you think it's a sin, but because I'm doing it, now you start doing it, even though you think it's a sin, that is stumbling. Okay, that is what this is talking about. And so what Paul is saying is do not force people to copy your liberty. That's what we need to know. Now, after focusing on what we needed to know, he then focused on what we needed to do. And he made it simple. Two things. Pursue peace. Meaning, do whatever you have to on your end to be at peace with the person who disagrees with you on these kind of things. And then the second thing is he said, keep your liberty to yourself. 
right? You don't have to be broadcasting your liberty. You don't have to force it on other people. It's just a liberty. He says, keep it to yourself, right? And if everybody would do that, then the church would stay united. That's where he was going with this. And so again, that is chapter 14 that catches us up. Now what he's going to do in chapter 15 is he finishes it. He's going to pull out the big guns. Now, if you think what he did in 14 wasn't the big guns, well, listen, all he did in 14 was he was giving us good arguments of why we need to love each other and what it looks like. What he's going to do in chapter 15 is he's going to pull out Christ. He's going to pull out the scriptures. That's when you know it's the big guns. And that's going to end the debate, right? Ultimately, what did Christ do and what does the Bible say? After all these arguments are done, what settles the issue is our Lord and his word. So we're going to get into that. And just one more reminder, okay? If the point of this is for the sake of unity, we bear each other's weaknesses by pleasing each other and accepting each other, do understand that there are limits to that. We don't please each other if it means sinning. Like if what would please you is if I join you in your sin, I'm not going to please you. Okay, And we don't accept each other in our sin, right? Well, I'm just happy to commit adultery and you have to accept me in my adultery. No, that's not what this is saying. What this is talking about is liberties. It has to do with things that the Bible doesn't say are sinful. These are things that are not sinful in and of themselves. But some people, for one reason or another, might think some of these things are sinful. And so these are liberties. We have a diverse uh, set of opinions on these things. And sometimes these are the issues that arise between different cultures as they're trying to do church together. And so the way that we stay united is we please each other and accept each other when it comes to those kinds of things. So with that being said, let's get into the text, okay? I said you have two sections, please each other, accept each other. And for the purpose of note-taking and following along, Paul makes this really easy. Both sections follow the same exact pattern. First, he gives you a command, then he brings up Christ as the example, then he brings up scripture, and then he closes with a benediction or a prayer, you know, that this would happen. So command, Christ, scripture, benediction. We'll see that in verses 1 through 6, and the next time we'll see that same thing again in verses 7 through 13, right? So let's start with verse 1. This is Paul's introduction to his final part of this argument. In verse 1, he writes this. He says, now, we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not to please ourselves. That verse is why I said the point of the text is for the sake of unity, we need to bear each other's weaknesses. It's just what he said, right? It's right there. Before he gets into his two commands, he lays this out there. This is what we're supposed to do. But I want us to look quickly at what he's saying before we get into his commands, If you notice in verse 1, Paul identifies himself with the strong. He says, we who are strong. So he's including himself with them. What that means is, again, objectively speaking, all food is clean. All days are alike. The Gentiles are right on this, right? Paul, the Jew, is is saying that. He's conceding it. And, And we could expand this. When it comes to anything that the Bible does not treat as a sin, then the person who understands that and lives according to that, they're strong. They're the strong Christian, right? But the person who makes up extra rules and follows the extra rules and thinks something's a sin even when it's not, that person's weak according to our text. And Paul's not saying that as an insult, like you're weak, man. No, it's not that. He's stating a fact. 
A hyperactive conscience makes you think that more things are sinful than really are, right? And so you're limiting yourself more than God actually requires. That is not a strength, okay? That positions weakness. You make yourself easier to stumble. It's like Paul said at the end of chapter 14. He said, blessed is the person that doesn't condemn himself when he enjoys his liberty, That person could keep these liberties with a clear conscience, enjoy what they're doing, and not be disturbed at all. They just enjoy it. The weak person, though, is always questioning everything. They're looking at every label on the food that they're buying, right? This person drives themselves to a point of anxiety. That is not a blessing. It's just what Paul calls it. It's weakness, okay? So again, the stronger the people who understand. If God does not forbid it, it's okay. The weak, not so much. But here's his point here. The strong have an obligation to the weak, okay? It's not the weak that have the obligation, well, they need to get stronger and, you know, stop being hyperactive. No, no, the onus is on the strong. The strong has the obligation to the weak. And you know, even the world understands that concept, right? That is why even the world, the sinful world, expects strong people to protect the vulnerable. That's why almost everybody sees it as a good thing if a strong man walks an elderly woman to her car, right? That's why a lot of ladies appreciate it when their man can open that bothersome jar, right? And that's why our society rightly understands that disabled folks should be able to park as close as possible to the store. And those who aren't disabled, we can walk a little further. It's not going to hurt us, right? And so even the world understands the strong have an obligation towards those who are weaker. And yet, when it comes to loving each other in the church, A lot of Christians throw that right out the window to where the world behaves better than the redeemed people of God. And it should not be that way. People will say, well, why do I have to change what I do just because it might stumble someone else? Why can't I drink a beer at the same table as a brother or sister that struggles with alcohol? You know, that's not my fault. Why can't I schedule a work party on Saturday just because we have a bunch of Sabbath keepers here? That's their fault for keeping the Sabbath, not mine. Well, all that would be like saying, why do I have to park at the end of the parking lot? It's not my fault that guy's disabled. It's not my fault that elderly woman lived long enough to get elderly and vulnerable. Why do I got to help her? It's not my fault that my wife has these little hands that can't fit around the jar top. You know, sorry, Bonnie. But anyway, um, you know, but, but that, you see how absurd that sounds? How absurd that sounds when people come to the church and they do that same thing. They do the same thing. And so the point is simple. Paul puts the onus on the one that's strong. He uses the word obligation. The word obligation in Greek means you have a debt. (coughs) This is something you owe. He's saying live as if you owe the weak. Okay? And so it's kind of like the life debt in some cultures where, like, if you save a life, that person has to follow you around until they save your life. Like in that Robin Hood movie with Kevin Costner, if you remember that. Um, that's, That's a debt, right? And they'll follow you around as long as they have to. They'll stick to you like glue. And what I'm saying is maybe we should look around this this room and understand that we all have a life debt to each other that was purchased when Christ purchased us from our sin and set us free. Now we have a life debt to each other, right? To bear each other's burdens. We have an obligation to not harm each other by insisting on our liberties. Now, he's going to tell us The nature of our obligation in verse 1, he says we are obligated to, quote, bear the weaknesses of those without strength. Does that look like he's telling you we just have to tolerate weakness? Oh, we just have to tolerate? No, he says you're to bear the weaknesses. 
Bearing the, bearing the weaknesses means we carry them. Their weaknesses become our own. And we'll carry, we'll carry these weaknesses. We'll carry these brothers and sisters if we have to. Now imagine, different example, imagine that you and a brother or sister are walking a mile or two miles. And the weaker one has a 50-pound dumbbell that they're carrying. And so tolerating that person would be like, all right, I'm going to walk slow so that I don't get too far ahead of them. And I've just come to understand that we're going to get there 20 minutes later than we would have. That's tolerating. That's not what this text is saying. What it's saying is, no, you're stronger. Take that 50-pound dumbbell and you carry it for them. That's what this is saying. So what that means in the real world of the first century in this Roman context is that if having non-kosher food makes it to where the Jewish folks could take the Lord's Supper with the Gentiles, then you know what? We don't need that food here. That's bearing their weakness. We could do without our pork and our shrimp for one day. Right? We could find kosher food. It's not like we can't eat kosher. You know, the strong can eat anything. Okay? The, the strong, we're the ones who think that all food's clean. And it's not like the kosher food tastes bad. Lots of all soup's pretty good. Right? And so for this one day out of the week, we can help you carry that burden by eating what you eat and not bringing the stuff you can't eat. Then you could take the Lord's Supper with us. That's us making your weakness our weakness, and we're carrying it with you, and we're not making a big deal out of it because we care more about you than we care about our liberty to eat our shrimp or our sausage or whatever it might be. Now, again, that given that this is wrapped up in the Lord's Supper, there are limits. There have been some people who have asked that, that churches change the Lord's Supper itself to accommodate a food allergy, and I don't think we could go that far. There's a theological reason why it's crushed grain, right, that is then formed and cooked, and there's a reason why it's crushed grapes, okay, and there's a reason why it's unleavened bread, Okay, all this paints a symbol, a theological symbol that, th that the word says. We have no right to change those symbols. You can't change baptism to like blankets. Well, we immersed you in blankets. You have been buried in blankets and now you've been raised. No, because the water also pictures the forgiveness of sins, the cleansing, rebirth, all that stuff. It's prophesied that the Holy Spirit will sprinkle you with water. A blanket doesn't, doesn't do that, right? And so the point is we have to keep with the symbols. So accommodation has a limit. You don't accommodate to the point where you disobey the Bible. But apart from that, yeah, you accommodate. So let's put this in, in a real-life context. Let's say some people have some major food allergies, and we have a potluck every quarter. Guess what? We can have a table that accommodates all the allergies, right? So that they could eat and not have to worry about getting sick or just feel like, well, nobody cares about us, so we're not going to show up. No, what we could do is make sure we show those folks that we care, right? That would be an idea of helping carry their burden. Now, Paul's point is to carry the weakness by, by making it your own. Otherwise, here's what you do if you're strong. You end up putting the weak folks in a situation where A, they either have to leave, or B, they have to commit a sin to stay, right? You're putting them in a position where you're forcing them to either leave and you don't care, or you're forcing them to sin against their conscience. And that is not right. If you insist on that, Paul is saying you are pleasing yourself, and that's not what we're supposed to do. Look at the end of verse 1. He says we're to bear the weak person's burden, quote, and not to please ourselves. It's not about you. Remember what love is. When we're preaching through chapter 13, I define love very specifically and biblically. Love is not a feeling, it's an action, and love always thinks of others. 
as sacrifices for the sake of others, regardless of how you feel. You might not feel like giving up your shrimp that day, but love is you give up your shrimp that day. You think of others, you sacrifice for the sake and the benefit of others. That is what the word love means. And by the way, people's marriages would be fantastic if they would live that same way. It's not about me, it's about the other person. It's about me dying to myself, laying myself down, and living and doing what would help and benefit that person. And if both partners are doing that, great marriages. But instead, everybody's like, me, 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 my, my, my. And that's the problem. And then that happens in the church as well. And it breaks unity. Breaks unity in the home, breaks unity in the church. Anyway, with Paul's introduction done in verse 1, so he tells us what to do, now he's going to move to the first command. He commands us to please our neighbor, not ourselves. Look at verse 2. He writes this. He says, each one of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. Now, this is a command. This is not a suggestion. Well, if you get around to it, please not please yourself, but please. No, this is a command. You do this for them, and you do this for a purpose. You build your neighbor up. Now, of course, we know that neighbor means everybody, but in this context, Paul's more focusing on your weaker brother or sister in the church. Again, it could be applied to both, but here he's focusing on your weaker brother or sister in the church. Do what's good for them. Do what builds that person up. Okay? That is what we are being told. And by the way, some translations use the word edify, to, to edify them. Edify just means to build up if you never knew, right? You're building them up. You're helping them to be more like Jesus. So if you think about it, if he's telling you you're to please your neighbor for his good to build them up, it's giving you the purpose, then that lets you know you're not to just please them in just anything, okay? You're not pleasing them in just anything. You don't do anything it takes to please someone. It's telling you to do what's pleasing for the sake of building them up. So that limits it, okay? Doing sin, it does not build them up, okay? That doesn't help them, right? The goal is to make them more like Christ. And so let's say you're back in the first century, you're the Gentile, you're trying to figure out how you could show love to, to the, the Jewish believer that had the hyperactive conscience, then what you would do is instead of breaking them down for being weak, you would maybe acknowledge the honor to some of this. You'd be like, you know what? Eating kosher and not eating all this other good stuff, that takes a lot of discipline. I wish I had that kind of discipline. In fact, I want to be like you in the sense where I can have that kind of discipline, not to eat the stuff you eat, you know, but to have the kind of discipline to uh, do the things that I know the Lord's telling me to do. You guys are awesome. You're, you're disciplined. That builds them up. Instead of saying, look at you guys, thinking you have to follow these things that you don't have to follow. You're weak, man. Weak. No, that doesn't build them up. That breaks them down. Okay? So you're supposed to build people up, encourage them. And then maybe as you build that relationship, over the course of time, you could show them the freedom that the gospel gives. Okay? But when you're beating them up, that's not showing them that. Right? I think a, a, probably the most common application for us, right? in our 21st century context, is alcohol. Drinking is not a sin. Getting drunk is a sin, okay? Some people can drink a beer, they could drink a glass of wine, and they are never tempted to get drunk. It's fine for them. I mean, Jesus turned water to wine. But there are some people where if they even have one little taste, they end up falling right back into slavery to that, right? And so it's a liberty, right? It's not something that you have to do, but it's not something that you can't do. So, some churches insist that we need to have the communion be wine. I think that's not a good idea. 
I don't think that's a good idea in our context. So what happens is by us removing the temptation by having grape juice, which is still crushed grapes, which still is in line with the symbol, what we do is we allow that person who struggles with that to take communion with no fear, no guilt, no anxiety that they're going to fall back into their sin. That builds that person up. I get to obey the Lord and I don't have to worry about this. And then you want to know what else builds that person up? Inviting them to hang out with you. Not saying, well, we got to exclude this guy because then I can't get my glass of, uh, you know, Manischewitz or whatever. Not like any restaurant served that one. But anyhow, you know, the, the, the thing is to say, I don't want this person with me because then I can't drink. That's wrong. You're putting your liberty ahead of a person. Instead, you say, you know what? I'd rather have the person than that liberty. Hey, will you come hang out with us this Wednesday when we go to Olive Garden or whatever? And then guess what happens? They're seeing that you love them and that you're fellowshipping with them and that you're having God-glorifying conversations where you're sharpening each other, okay? But if you're unwilling to do that because you want your sake or whatever instead of the person, then that's wrong. It's wrong. And I think If we sat down and thought about it, we could think of even more examples besides alcohol. But I think that's the easiest one for us to relate to. And and so with that, we could use that as the principle for just about everything else. The point is, one way that we bear each other's burdens is to not please ourselves, but instead to please others by helping them to carry their burdens so that we can build them up. It's about building them up. Now, Paul definitely teaches this elsewhere. It's not just here. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, he commands it. He says, carry one another's burdens. In this way, you'll fulfill the law of Christ. I like that because in chapter 13, he says, love fulfills the law. Right here, he's saying carrying each other's burdens fulfills the law. What does that tell you? Love is carrying each other's burdens. Now, the question is, does he command this and not do it? Or does Paul do the very thing he's commanding? He lived this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. He says, Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I also try to please everyone in everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many, so that they may be saved. I love that. Whether it's Jews or Greeks or even the church of God, various churches from various different cultures, Paul will lay down whatever liberty he has to to be at home with those people so he could benefit them rather than himself. Now, I do want to throw this out there, though. This is pleasing people only with regard to liberties. There are some ways in which we are never to please people, okay? When it comes to doctrine and obeying God, we are not people pleasers, okay? Because it would be real easy to please our culture just to start denying half of what this says. Half of what the word says, and now we'll be pleasing people. We are not to do that. And you want proof of that? Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, the second part of it. You had in Galatians, you had people teaching false doctrine and telling people to live in a false way. And Paul more or less says, if I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. In other words, I'm not going to say what these guys are trying, would want me to say and what these guys are saying to you. I'm here to please God, not man. Right? So when it comes to doctrine and the way we live, we are not people pleasers. We're God pleasers. But within the community of believers, when it comes to our liberties, we are to be those who please each other rather than ourselves. And Paul showed he was willing to do that. He would lay down anything for the benefit of his brother or sister in Christ. If all Christians would do that, then Christian unity would not be a problem. We would be showing amazing unity every day. But alas, too many believers do not think this way. 
And so Paul is going to pull out the big guns. He's going to offer the best example possible for those who hear this and say, yeah, I'm still not moved. What he says next should move you or you're probably not saved. In the first part of verse 3, he says, for even Christ did not please himself. That's what he says. For even Christ did not please himself. I think even the most casual reading of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, bear this out. Jesus was always on mission for the Father, and he was always taking care of the needs, spiritually and physically, of those he came across. Additionally, Paul summarizes the the ministry of Jesus this way in 2 Corinthians 8-9. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. So he is the God of the universe, and yet he humbled himself and became a man. Now look, he didn't, you know, he didn't have to, uh, or he didn't have himself born in, as uh, a rich, like the son of a rich king in a rich palace. You notice that? He could have been born to the richest family in the world as long as they were a descendant of David, of course. But the point is, he chose to be born to a poor family. He didn't choose to come down as a man and have a job that everybody respects, the lawyer, the doctor. He took a humble job, carpentry or stonemasonry. The word could go either way. So he lived in poverty. He lived under the oppression of the Roman government, which was a very oppressive government. And yet he was able to live a life of perfection that pleased the Father. And I just want you to think about that. Some people say that if you're under oppression or you're under poverty, you can't please God. That's baloney. Jesus was in poverty and under oppression, and he lived a perfect life. Okay, oppression and poverty does not make you sin. Now, as Christians, I think we should alleviate those things where we can. But some people are trading the real gospel for a social gospel, and that's not a good idea. Jesus lived that perfect life in this humble condition, and he didn't do this to please himself. He did this to please the Father, and he did this to please us. Okay, furthermore, as he pleases the Father with this perfect life, and he pleases us by giving us the credit for that perfect life, again, was his focus on himself. No, it was on us. When he went to that cross, was he wanting to go to that cross? There was a prayer, if you remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane. But then he said, not my will, Father, but your will be done. He went to the cross not to please himself, but to please the Father and to please us. And the Father, according to Isaiah 53, was pleased to crush him on our behalf. Because the Father had every intention to save us, and Christ was going to do what it took for that. Christ was pleased to be crushed for us since it would save us. So here's my point. If you ever have a problem loving others and putting them first, just look at Christ our Lord. What possible excuse could you give to God to get you off the hook? What could you say to Christ that would make him say, oh, okay, I understand it's okay for you to be self-centered. What could you possibly say to him? If you were to say to Jesus, why do I have to carry other people's light burdens? Or why can't I be bitter? Or why? If you were to say any of that, how would you feel if he responded and say, why did I then carry your infinite burden? I didn't have to. I didn't have to come and die for you. I had no obligation to you. You sinned. You put yourself in that situation. I didn't have to lift one little ounce of that burden, but I carried it all, and it was infinite, and I did that for you, and you're now whining about a light burden for somebody else? Who do you think you are? 
right? That is what we need to be thinking. How could any of us, how could any of us push back against what our text is saying? Jesus commanded us to love each other like he loves us. There's nothing we could say to push back, right? How could any of us be willing to sacrifice unity in the church because we don't want to imitate Jesus? Are we greater than him? Meganoito, which means may it never be. No, no, a thousand times no. We are not greater than him. So who do we think we are, right? Now, Paul brought up Christ's example, which again should end all debate in the first part of verse 3. But then he's, he's got more. In the second part of verse 3, he brings up Scripture. So we got Christ's example, then we got Scripture. He writes, he says this, he says, On the contrary, it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Now, there he's quoting Psalm 69, verse 9, where King David is crying out to God, saying that people hate me because I'm living for you. God, I'm doing what you tell me to do, and now the people who insult you, they're insulting me. Well, here's the thing. David, King David is a type or a shadow. He's like a, a blurry image of what would later point to Christ. And so, yes, this was true of David, but it points forward that it's going to be more true of Jesus and ultimately be fulfilled in him. And so if people hated David for following God faithfully yet imperfectly, okay, they're going to hate the Messiah even more because Jesus followed God perfectly, right? And that is why both Jew and Gentile conspired against Jesus to nail him to the cross, Yet Christ wasn't out to please himself. He's actually saying, you know, the people who insult you, they're insulting me as well, Father. But I'm here to do your bidding, right? I'm here to save these people. That is what Christ did, and the scriptures anticipated that. Now, in verse 4, Paul's then going to make a defense for quoting the scripture. I mean, I don't think we ever have to defend ourselves quoting the scripture, but Paul's going to do it anyway. He's going to tell you why he quotes the scripture and why scripture is important, okay? Because there's so many truths. You can learn from Christ's example, but you also can learn from the scripture. And we're commanded to learn from the scripture. So look at verse 4. He writes this. He says, for, which grounds what he just said. He quoted the scripture. Now he's saying, for, meaning this this is why I quoted the scripture. He says, for whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction, so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the scriptures. Now, he says almost the same thing in 1 Corinthians 10, 11 as well. He says those things that happened in the past were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come, right? So same general thing. And what he's letting us know is that the Old Testament was not just written for the people of its time. Neither was the New Testament. This is written for God's people of all times. Now, a lot of times we just jettison the Old Testament, which is foolish. Look at 2 Timothy 3.15, where Paul is talking about the Old Testament. He says to Timothy, he says, And you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. When Timothy was an infant, there was no New Testament. There was only the Old Testament. That is the scripture he's talking about. And yet he is saying that scripture gave you wisdom for salvation and faith in Christ. That's the Old Testament. If we never got the New Testament, the Old Testament was enough. And that's what the apostles were using, right? But then we also have the New Testament. So any of these passages now, after the fact, we could say it's also true of the New Testament. But my point in saying this is, I remember the first church I was at for eight years, said that we're New Testament Christians. The Old Testament does not apply to us. 
This passage just said the exact opposite. And I want you to think about it, right? 2 Timothy 3.15 is followed by 3.16 and 17, a verse that most Christians have memorized in some form. And yet, the scripture he's talking about is the same one he just said in verse 15. Let's look at the next verse. He says, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. When Paul wrote this line, the New Testament was not done yet. It was being finished, and then later it would be compiled. But he's talking about the Old Testament. Again, New Testament can be added to that after the fact. But what he means right here is the old. The old was the standard. He's telling you it was breathed out by God. And that it teaches you the right things to believe. That's what he means by profitable for teaching. It teaches you the right things to believe. It rebukes you for believing the wrong things. It corrects you for living the wrong way, but then shows you how to do it right by training you for righteousness, to live in the right way. And then the result, and again, this is all the Old Testament. The result is, he says, it equips you and makes you complete. Now, again, the New Testament only adds to that and makes it better and clearer. But even the Old Testament does all that. And that's why I'm so glad that Pastor Josh loves to teach on Sunday mornings through the Old Testament. You guys need that. We all need that. And on Wednesdays, I'm committed to also always doing the Old Testament, right? And I would suggest you guys not to keep reading the letter of 1 John over and over again. Yep, that's my Bible reading. Like, how many times have you read it? A thousand? Okay, go to Genesis, please. And don't quit at Leviticus, please. Just keep going. You need the whole thing. That's why it was given to us. So going back to Paul's point in verse 4, it was written for our instruction. It's meant to teach us, and it's supposed to produce something in us. He says, he tells us what? He says it's for our instruction so that, quote, we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the scriptures. Now think about that. He's telling us what the scriptures are supposed to give us. They're supposed to give us hope that we may have hope. The Bible produces hope in us. Now remember, the word hope in the Bible means absolute certainty. It is not the willy-nilly word that we use in English where I hope it'll rain when there's not a cloud in the sky, right? When we say hope, we're, we're not expecting anything to happen. In the Bible, hope was usually a noun rather than a verb. We have a hope. And what's that hope? We have an absolute expectation that God is gonna keep every one of his promises, Okay, so we wait patiently. We don't know if he's going to fulfill all his promises today, but we know he's going to fulfill all of his promises and we are okay that it's going to be on his timing. But we have an absolute certainty that we will be resurrected. We have an absolute certainty that his death on the cross wiped away all of our sins. We have an absolute certainty that there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. For those who are in Christ Jesus, right? We have certainty. We don't have wobbly knees. We don't have doubt. That is what hope is. But Where's he saying the hope comes from? The scriptures. If you want to have that kind of hope, then read the scriptures every day. Study them. Meditate on them. Memorize them and repeat them again and again throughout the day. I'm going to tell you something. As as a guy who counsels a lot of people, Christians that seem the most hopeless are usually the ones who are most biblically illiterate. And I don't say that as an insult. I'm just saying it's reality. They don't read the Bible. Okay, They don't know what the word says. And because of that, they lose trust in God and they act as if it's God's fault for not telling them enough during their circumstance. If God would only tell me more where this is going or why he's letting this happen, I might trust him. And I'm like, this is pretty thick. He has told us plenty. Well, I don't have time to read that. 
Yeah, between all the Seinfeld and Office reruns, I think you do, okay? We do have time to read this. And by the way, I read it and watch those reruns. So you don't even have to, you don't even have to trade them. You could do both, anyhow. So if you read your Bible cover to cover again and again, then you will have confidence in God because you're going to be familiar with the amazing things that he's done in history that he's recorded in his word. You'll also understand that it is pretty common that he is the one who often sends the tough times into our lives on purpose because he's going to work something really good in our lives through it. He's going to make us more mature through it. In other words, the more you know about God from his word and what he does and why he does what he does, the more you know, then the less likely you're going to fall apart in tough times because maybe you'll start thinking of Joseph when he was in slavery for 20 years. Or you'll be thinking of Israel during the Exodus when Pharaoh's making their work harder or chasing them in chariots. Or you might think of David when he's on the run for years because King Saul is trying to kill him for no reason. Or you might think of Elijah, a righteous prophet, when he is despondent because Jezebel is trying to kill him. Or you might think of the apostles as they're going from city to city, preaching the gospel, saving multitudes, and yet constantly being persecuted, and yet singing songs of praises to God saying, you counted us worthy to suffer for your name. You'll start to have a different picture in your head is what I'm saying. You'll also remember and learn from the scripture that when the timing is right, God judges the wicked and exalts the righteous. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 says he will exalt us at the proper time. We want the proper time to be our time. No, we wait. The proper time is the time he's picked. And at that time, he'll judge the wicked. And at that time, he will exalt the righteous. Fact, sometimes you want like a meteorite to fall on your worst enemy. And yet, if you read your scripture, you'll see that sometimes God takes your worst enemy and turns that person into your greatest brother. Consider Paul, a persecutor of the church who becomes now a builder of the church and writes a beautiful letter like Romans, okay? Knowing all of that, knowing the word should encourage you, as our verse says, and it should help you endure, as, our, as verse four says, just as the text says. And through the encouragement and endurance that the scriptures give you, hope, this expectation, this certainty will really start to take root in your heart. That's the only way. It's not going to happen apart from the word. If you're thinking it's just going to happen just by you sitting there, it's not. you got to be in the word. Now, a little bit of personal testimony here. I have faced a lot of hard things, especially since I became a full-time pastor. Many of you know, like right away, there was this giant exodus for no reason that really made this church's day-to-day operations very difficult. And this went on for a couple years. And then people would be busting our chops for no good reason, right? We're just trying to serve and love. And it just, it was not an easy time. I got a lot more gray hair. That's why I shave and, you know, and stuff like that. But, but here's the thing. All those ministry beatdowns, you would think would make me get more timid, maybe look for a way out, you know, or do less than what I'm doing for the Lord because working for him, it's hard, right? But actually, instead of being more timid, God's only strengthened my resolve. He's made me more zealous, more fanatical, and a good kind of fanaticism, okay, than I've ever been. I actually want to do more for him, not less. I want to take more risks for him. I want this church to take more risks for him. And I can't explain it. Those beatdowns should have made me want to like kind of crawl in a little hole and not make waves, 
But it's like, dude, let's make more waves. Let's just keep doing what God calls us to do. And I know the reason why I think this way and why my resolve is stronger. It's not because of anything in me. It's because of the word. You guys demand that you get deep sermons from us. So I'm in the word all the time. And that's shaping me as I come to preach to you. And, and I, word the, I read the Bible cover to cover every year anyway. I've been doing that since 2005. And so because the word of God is in me, it makes it to where those beatdowns are just refining. They're not making me want to quit. And I think the same holds true for anybody that is in the word consistently, right? There's certain things that I just know from reading the Bible. Like, for example, I know that nothing bad that happens to me is unusual, I know that Christ, my Lord, endured infinitely worse trials for me than I could ever endure for him. And I know, and I've got this memorized, that he told me that if I'm through this, not through a burning bush, through the word, he told me that if I am going to follow him, if I'm going to be a Christian, then I have to take up my what? My cross. A cross is not a piece of jewelry. It was an instrument of death. Okay, I have to be willing to die to myself. He said that anyone who tries to save his life, so if I try to save my life, what will happen? I will lose it, okay? But if I give it all for him, okay, as he has already given infinitely more for me, then he says those who are willing to lose their life will truly find it. That is where I will find my life, is in giving it all for him. Why? Because my life is wrapped up in his life. And he promised, he said, because I live, you too will live. So it doesn't matter if I get killed in a car accident on the way to a hospital visit. It doesn't matter if I get the privilege to go preach in Nicaragua and some communists capture me and torture me. None of that matters. Because he lives, I will live. Okay, I'm bulletproof till he's done with me. I know that. And because I know that, I could serve without fear. But I wouldn't know that if I wasn't in his word, and if I wasn't taking his word seriously. And then I also know, when I'm reading books like Hebrews, and also reading Genesis and stuff like that, I know guys like Abraham, and and the prophets, and so forth. A lot of Old Testament heroes never received the prize they were hoping for, but they lived faithfully nevertheless. And the book of Hebrews tells us why, because they are looking for that day for a city that's not of this world, an everlasting city. And they know, they know that God meant not to give it to them without us. He means to give it to us all at the same time. And I'll tell you something, you might want it right now, okay? You might want it right now and you might think it'd be great if he gave it to you right now. But I guarantee you're going to think it's 10 times greater when we all get the prize at the same time. And you're cheering right next to King David and right next to each other and right next to maybe your great grandkids and your great grandparents who are redeemed. And you're all receiving it together. That's going to be a thousand times better than, oh, I just want it right now and you get it right now. Okay? This is what the scripture tells us. God has the time set. So I can live right now faithfully, even if I don't get those promises now, because I know it's going to come at the right time. Okay? And I know when I see it, I'm going to be overwhelmed. Now, where does all that confidence, that hope come from? Scripture. Walk with God through the scripture regularly, and you will have that growth. You'll have that encouragement. You'll have that endurance, and you'll have hope. So, because the word of God, and the example of Christ, right? Because Paul's bringing those up, he now closes this first section based on what he said about Christ and based on what he said about the scriptures. He closes this section with a benediction in verses five and six. A benediction is kind of like a, a wish, a prayer wish, 
Like he's praying that God's going to do these things for you that Paul was just talking about. And so he was talking about encouragement and endurance from the scriptures. He's going to work in unity, okay? Not pleasing uh, yourself, but pleasing others. He's going to work that into this benediction. So look at, at, at verse five. He says, now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another according to Christ Jesus, okay? So he's saying, may God do this. May he who gives us endurance and encouragement through the scriptures, as long as we're getting into the scriptures, may he grant you something. Now, what's Paul asking him to grant you? That he would grant you to live in harmony with one another. That's what he's praying. Now, this Greek word for harmony literally means to have one mind. He's praying that God would grant us to think the same way. This isn't asking us to give up our minds and be thoughtless, mindless people. What he's praying is that on the issues of liberty, we'd all agree. We would agree that no liberty is worth more than my brother or sister's soul. No liberty is worth more than even my brother or sister's edification or building them up. Okay? It is more important that we help build each other up than it is to insist on our own right to do something. Now, if we all thought that way, if all the strong thought that way, the weak don't even have to think that way, if all the strong thought that way, we would have harmony. We would have harmony. We would have unity. The church would truly function as one body working at full capacity. Okay, the only reason why the church is not functioning in full capacity is because too many people insist on their own way. The Bible compares the church to your body. What happened? What would happen if your right hand, your left foot, were wanting to do their own thing, your mouth just starts doing its own thing, your teeth start chomping while your tongue is sticking out, your eyeballs are going in there? You will literally kill yourself in a minute if all the parts of your body decided to do their own thing. But they don't because they work in harmony for one purpose. That's how the church is supposed to be. And look, this goes beyond just liberty issues. This goes to serving. Okay, that's not a liberty issue, right? That's a sin issue. But those who don't serve in the church at all, they are insisting on their own way. They're insisting on their right to be lazy and comfortable. They're insisting on their right to be served rather than to serve. And Paul told us here to, quote, live in harmony with one another, what? According to Christ. Or you could translate it in the manner of Christ. So what was the manner of Christ? In Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus says this. He says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's how, that's the manner of Christ, okay? Does it sound like he was coming to, to have us demand or that he was coming demanding all of his rights and ways upon us? Now, as our king, he can demand and we are to serve. But as the king, he came as a servant. It's amazing. Christ served. So I can serve. Christ gave himself as a sacrifice for my salvation. So I could give up or sacrifice some liberty for the sake of any of your edification. Okay? One day a week, seriously, is not hard to give up a liberty. Or two days a week or whatever. Now, if we want to pull this all together properly, okay, then we're to think about our unity by thinking and acting like Jesus. That will put us in harmony. And again, what is harmony? Harmony is multiple, different, and diverse things coming together and working with each other with a united purpose. Think of music. We have a good illustration of this every single Sunday. We have different instruments, and we have different voices on this stage. What would happen if they all did their own thing, played their own tune, and demanded their own uniqueness? It would sound like clanging cymbals. But what happens if each of them and each instrument worked together in unison for a common purpose? 
you end up with beautiful music and singing that praises the Lord that then invites us all to praise the Lord with them. That's harmony. Okay, So take that idea and apply it to the whole church and everything. The way we, we live with each other, the way that we, we serve with each other should be like a skillful song done in harmony. But that only happens when self is given up in it to, for the work of the whole. Okay, Then you have harmony. But when self insists on its own way, then you got the chaos of a clanging symbol. So if we have the one mind of Christ, what happens? Well, Paul prays that God will grant this for a purpose. Verse 6 tells us the purpose, what this is supposed to lead to. That if God grants us harmony, he's, he's to do this, quote, so that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one mind and one voice. See, if we are in harmony as a church, then what he's saying is we'll glorify the Father. We'll glorify the Father from whom all blessings flow. Why would we not want to do that? Why would we insist on our own way and put that ahead of of glorifying the Father? Now, he mentions both two members of the Trinity here. The Father is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Father. Jesus is the eternal Son. Both are the one God. For the father to be the father, he always had to have a son. But for the father to always have a son, the son has to always be eternally begotten from the father, meaning he's always been coming from the father. There was never a time where Jesus was not coming from the father. And then, of course, the Holy Spirit has always been eternally proceeding from both the father and the son and is the bond of love between them. And the reason I bring this up is because our one God, is an amazing God that is eternally three persons. And we glorify that God when we are in unity as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are also in unity. Now what Paul is saying here is that if we have one mind because we are instructed by Scripture and we harmonize with each other in the manner of Christ, he's saying then we will glorify God and he says we will do so, quote, with one mind and one voice, end quote. That is referring to our doctrine and our singing. We will have one doctrine and we will sing with one voice. And so I want to focus on that that one voice for a second. When people won't sing because the music doesn't fit their preference or their style, then they are insisting on their own way. But instead, if you seek to please your brothers and sisters rather than yourself, and you're instructed by the scripture, and you've learned endurance and encouragement from the scripture... And if you're trying to imitate Jesus and harmonize in his manner, then you will lay yourself aside so that your voice joins all of our voices so that we could all sing with that one voice that is built on that one doctrine. And what does singing with one voice accomplish according to this verse? That the Father will be glorified. Now let me ask you something. Some of you know this. How does the Westminster Catechism begin? What question does it begin with? What is the chief end of man? And what is the answer? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Okay, If our chief end is to glorify God, and our text says that thinking the same on this issue and singing with one voice is what will glorify him, then why in the world would anyone not lift their voice with the worship leaders as we have this opportunity to glorify God with that one voice? Why oppose singing in the music. Why oppose the preaching? Some people, the sermons are too long. I know, I'm working on it. But anyhow, some people oppose that, right? But we're supposed to be united in mind on the scripture. 
right? We're supposed to be united on it. In both the, our, our understanding of Scripture and in our singing, we're supposed to be one giant harmonious symphony of diverse beauty that exalts the God who saved us. So let's not fight against that. Now, how does this all relate back to Paul's bigger point? When the church functions properly rather than divide over petty issues, then we imitate Christ, we follow Scripture, we sing with one voice, and we give God a boatload of glory. But when we bite and devour each other over different opinions and preferences, then we reject Christ's example, we deny Scripture's commands, we sing with disharmony, and we give God shame rather than glory. So what I'm saying is this is bigger than just us all getting along. Okay, it's a lot bigger than that. This is glorifying God. In church, on Sunday morning, as we worship God together, heaven meets earth in that time. And His will, as it's done in heaven, is supposed to be done here on earth as we are united in one mind, based on one doctrine, from His word, and singing with one voice. And He gets glorified. So may we never let our selfish desires get in the way of that. So, as we come to a close... Recall that church unity glorifies God. And because of that, we should bear, we must bear each other's weaknesses. And one way we do that is by pleasing each other. Next time we'll see the second part where we accept each other. Okay, But the thing is, what we saw this morning is we lay our selfish wants down for the sake of building up others. Why? Because this is what Jesus does. This is what he did. Also, why? Because this is what the scripture shows. This is what will lead to endurance, encouragement, and harmony. And this then brings God's glory. And so what I want to exhort us with is rather than talking more about liberties and preferences, I want you to think for a second why what we do here matters. If unity depends on imitation of Christ and that depends on Scripture, then the only way a church could be healthy and united is if it is deeply in the Bible. That's the only way. That's the only way. Why do you think so many churches are so divided out there? Why do you think the world can't see that we're Christians by our love? It's because most churches are shallow in their teaching. And so their people don't know the Bible. And therefore, they don't have certainty or hope in God. They don't endure. But when things get hard, they give up. And they bite and devour each other over all this stuff. They don't encourage. They don't sing to glorify God. But they only sing when it satisfies their desire to hear the music they like. They don't serve, but they wait to be served. And so what happens is those churches actually aren't churches. Instead, they are miniature Billy Graham crusades that are repeated every Sunday. Think about a Billy Graham crusade. It's not church. It's an evangelism event where a bunch of people gather together to hear a concert and then listen to a message geared towards unbelievers. And then if you're a believer, well, you kind of walk away unaffected. That's not church. But that's how most churches operate. And since they're focusing on this milky stuff, people aren't growing. What does the Bible say the church is? It's a temple. It's a flock. It's a bride. It's one body of many parts, and it's the pillar and foundation of truth. Does that all paint the picture of a bunch of people just coming and and being entertained? Or hearing seven tips to better whatever? No. A temple means we're all bricks being built together into the temple and we are filled with the Spirit of God. A flock means we follow our good shepherd and depend on him and rely on him and hear his voice and listen to his voice. As a bride, we are in unison with him, united with him. As a body that's made up of many parts, 
It's exactly that. We're working together using what God has given us for the function of the whole. And as the pillar and foundation of the truth, we're to be those who are going out preaching and teaching what this book says. That is what a church is. Okay, And so this only happens when a church commits to being biblical people doing biblical things the biblical way. That's our motto here. Biblical people doing the biblical things the biblical way. And the only way you can be biblical is if you're in the Bible. The only way a church is going to be biblical is if at the pulpit we're being very biblical and giving heavy sermons based on the scripture and that our small groups dive deep into the scripture. That's how we do it. And then you in your home life diving deep into the scripture. That's how we get there. So may we be unapologetic on our commitment to be deep in the word and in our preaching rather than shallow. And I just want to say this. Hopefully it doesn't sound like I'm beating up on you guys. I was telling my small group that I'm very proud of this church. The church I was going two churches ago, you know, in America, we end up at a lot of churches in the course of our life. Two churches ago, I remember every Sunday during the closing prayer, 400 people would get up and walk out. The service didn't even end yet. And I remember the pastor would rebuke them and they would just walk faster because they want to get their lunch. And they only had an hour and 15 minute worship service. We dump two hours on you guys consistently every week with like 65 minute sermons and nobody walks out during our closing prayer. And then you all stick around for 30 minutes after we're done fellowshipping with each other. I know you're hungry by that point, but I'm telling you, it's amazing to see that. And I think the only thing that brings us to that point is maturity that comes from being in the word. So it is worth it. This is why we do what we do. And so may we be in the word, may we be, some, may we be the most confident people in God because we have the hope that he gives us. May we be those who endure and encourage and carry each other's load so that we'll be, have that harmony of one mind and one voice. And may we sing right now, because we're going to have a song, in a way that glorifies God. Now, last thing, if there's any unbeliever here, let me tell you this, okay? What we're talking about, about unity in Christ. And this kind of love that I'm talking about can only happen if you have a new heart, if you're born again by God. And so here's the thing. You are guilty of sin. One day you'll stand before God and you will have to answer for your sins. But know this, that our God made a way for salvation, that Jesus came into his own creation and died for the sin of sinners who believe on him to where their penalty is completely paid. And then he rose on the third day so that he could give them the credit of his righteousness. If you trust Jesus and turn away from your sin, if you believe on him, you'll be forgiven of all sins and you'll be saved. And then you'll enter into his his body, his temple, his flock, And then you can learn to to love one another just like our text says. So don't walk out of here still in your sin. We we would love um, to have you come to Christ. So if you have any questions about this, come and talk to me, and I'll gladly walk you through it. With that, we're going to pray, and then uh, we got one more song, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper and be dismissed.